This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Introducing complex settings. Horror films go apocalyptic. Bad cooking advice. And the Zaris Gina Hole. Meet pop-up juncture Nazis with wolf guns blazing. Open a whoop-ass can on European slavers in 1850s Brazil. Rev your furiously fast Ferrari through the underworld. If you've been itching to try your hand at some or all of these activities, you're in luck. That's because our friends at Atlas Games are launching an adventure subscription plan for Feng Shui 2. That's right, the game Robin designed. Members get free PDFs, early access to new adventures, and 10% off cover price. If the program gets 350 subscribers by January 1st, Atlas anticipates releasing four new adventures in 2021, plus more action-packed new material in the future. If you're interested in making this program a reality, or if you just want your new supplements delivered right to your door, you should sign up for a subscription. Visit atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription to learn more and subscribe. You'll only be charged when Atlas Games ships you a book. And you can cancel anytime. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the friendly confines of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, we've, oh, look at those miniatures. One of them's got like a peacock feather on their head, and another one's wielding some, it looks like, is it a cheese grater, Robin? I don't even know what this third one is, but it's got either more or fewer legs. All of this. It's a Skurbangi from the Seventh Eon. Let me uh, tell you about its religious practices for 15 minutes. Oh, thank God. Thank God. Something to do for 15 minutes in the gaming hut. Oh, or we could play games, or even we could answer the question of beloved Patreon Becker, Jacob Ansari, who asks, how would one go about trying to sell a deep and unfamiliar setting, say, Glorantha, or Mark Smiley's The Known World, or even an unfamiliar historical setting? Robin, how do you go about selling Glorantha? I, are your players, were they all big Glorantha heads and demanding their own special rune and whatnot? Or were they simple folk of the prairies who you brought in to hear tales of Orlanth? They were my long-suffering playtest players who Steve. are made to suffer more than an actual group of, of willing players would realistically be asked to suffer and often... The way that I sell things to my group is, I got to play test this. Are you coming? <laughs> and so the, they, they were a not, shall we say, a group that I would have handpicked to uh, run uh, Glorantha for. Well, first of all, Jacob, good on you for like slipping in a thing for Ken to talk about later in, into your question. Uh, but <laughs> Glorantha, uh, like uh, and other examples, would be Jeroon and Tecumel. The whole point of them is the depth and complexity of the setting. And they are entertaining to people who are willing to dig in and, and enjoy exploring the uh, literally vast corpus of setting material and what the uh, people, I think what unites all of these settings is that it's a reaction in some way or another against the sort of genericness and easy makeup, anything goes kind of setting uh, that you associate with D and D in particular, 
Um, and so uh, not everything goes in, in Glorantha. It has, it creates its own set of archetypes and stereotypes that are unfamiliar until you dive in. And so uh, the question of how to sell it as opposed to how to present it is I think you start out saying, do you want to do a deep dive into a really unfamiliar, deep setting that will reveal itself over time and is not based on any of the things that you're familiar with or takes all of the uh, tropes that you are familiar with and twist them 137 degrees the way that so Glorantha has elves, but they're plant people. Uh, they have dwarves, but they're biological beings who are created in emulation of machines that were destroyed earlier in the perfect age. And, uh, you know, all of the, uh, the fantasy cliches are, are different. The, the gods are different. The cultures have elements of historical cultures, but it's all, uh, especially in the best, most interesting cases, put through sort of a mix master so that it's not clearly any one historical culture. So you have to do A, that, and B, also sell whatever else it is that the game is doing. It's almost always a game of cultural exploration. Uh, often they have sort of a sandboxy feel. And so that's how you would describe it to people. And my uh, experience is that someone who is super enthused about the setting can draw some people in and then give people other characters that don't care that much uh, about the setting. And so I think we can move on to the issue of how to actually present that in play past the, the selling it to your players part. But Ken, your answer is, I, I can predict your answer, which is you also have a, an unusual <laughs> yeah. group of players. How do you sell your players on a deep historical setting? Yes, you, you begin you begin with players who are all uh, either history majors or deep science fiction readers and go to the University of Chicago. And uh, you'd be surprised what you can get away with with a player group like that. Um, yeah, when we were doing things like Ars Magica and I picked Brittany, I knew Brittany existed, but I knew literally nothing about 13th century Brittany. And I said, let's all do Brittany together. And so that meant everyone hit the library. And that was, we were doing that all day, every day anyway. So this was, this was like sticking it to the man by looking at medieval Brittany for us. <laughs> we're going to research, but it'll be fun. And yeah, and take that rewarding. Rockefellers. Your university is enabling us to screw around with Ars Magica. Ha ha! Now who's the winner? Oh, right. Still the Rockefellers. Anyway, and so that is the sort of player that I, it's not that I attracted them. It's literally that, that was what was underneath the soil when I sank the shaft was University of Chicago players. And my group has sort of, thanks to settler effect, remained at the very least open to that sort of play, although they also, you know, it's cultural exploration is not the end all and be all. Uh, and it wasn't even for that original group that there was lots of other various possibilities. So the, the goal, as you say, I think is to identify the one or two players in the group who are cultural explorers by nature or by temperament, and then rapidly figuring out what in that unfamiliar setting will appeal to players of other sorts. And so if they are the sort of just here to hit things, most settings have a just here to hit things job or species or culture or whatever. And you say, you, my friend, are a, um, a wandering sellsword from the back of Ireland and you don't know any of these people. They None of them talk Irish. So just hit them when they when they aren't nice to you. OK, great. And I'm here to go. Whatever it is, you know, you begin by 
saying this is a fun looking era or world to explore together. Your explorers will be on board. Your other players come along and it's up. It's, it's contingent on you. It's your job to provide them with the things that they get out of game as early and as front loaded into the process and as permanent a part of the game as the cultural exploration will be for the other players. And then if they pick up on stuff and enjoy the sort of, Oh, this is fun. That's a bonus. And I think every GM familiar or unfamiliar should always be trying to interest players in the setting. That's literally your job as, as the GM. And so whether it's as familiar as Chicago 1999 and you're describe something in all of your Chicagoan players who've lived there as long as you say, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't known that. Or that's a fun way to look at that. Uh, or it's some sort of recondite, you know, Tecamel expansion that you dug up from the back beyond of some game store. Your job is to is to present it in a way that engages at the table, whether the players are super familiar or unfamiliar, because that's the job of setting in a story anyway. Right. So, so let's break down what presenting one of these complex settings is all about. And uh, I think a key point of understanding is that even the characters in the world, especially if it is a pre-information age world, i.e. any fantasy world, mm-hmm. they know only a fraction of the setting themselves, right? If you're uh, uh, from the uh, Orlanthe kingdom of Sartar in Dragon Pass, you know your own clan lands and you kind of know your neighbors, you know your own culture, you know your own uh, subculture, the particular uh, god you worship. But other than that, you don't have the vast corpus of knowledge that is in all of the giant source books. And so what you need as a GM to convey to the players is you only need to know what your character knows. And your character has probably a parochial uh, vision of the world. Uh, One thing that I tried to do with the original Hero Wars, the rules light, a version of the Glorantha setting that has had a number of incarnations and was never quite fully implemented due to the nature of it being a collaborative process was my initial idea was that every major character type, you know, a Stormbull warrior, for example, would have several paragraphs of text written in the second person explaining everything you need to know about being a Stormbull. And so uh, it gets you into it immediately, and it creates the idea of, oh, I only need to know this to get started. It's only three paragraphs. I don't need to worry about all of these, this entire bookshelf and stuff. I've got this. I'm ready to go. And so uh, that is something that you could import uh, into uh, whatever complex setting you're doing is a one-sheet handout for each uh, player uh, showing them what their character needs to know. Uh, Proceeding doing that, you'll want to have discussion with them and say, well, what kind of general character do you want to play? And I'll tell you what the equivalent of that is in this game. So that you say, well, I just, I just want to kill things. Oh, well, you're a gunslinger. And this is what being a gunslinger in the Sabari trenches is like. And here's what you need to know about the tradition of Sabari gunslingers. And then you're good to go. And then as you go along, uh, once you've given people just a, the confidence that they're not supposed to know everything and b the idea of how their starting stereotype interacts with its version in this world is as they explore and encounter and do things, give them only what they need to know in order to understand the scene they're in. And so resist the urge to break into two pages of paraphrased exposition that if they want to know, 
the uh, calligraphy uh, tradition of this particular group of warrior monks, they will tell you that when you say, oh, there's a bunch of warrior monks in the back and they're practicing their calligraphy. One of the players says, oh, what's that all about? You tell them. If they don't, you keep on going. And so as much as possible, set up your description of the world so that it is in, uh, you give people little cues and then you wait for the players to ask uh, rather than telling them things that they don't need to know. Or when you do tell them things, make them relevant to the adventure. So it's like, oh, well, there's a calligraphy related murder coming up. And uh, once you notice that, then you'll ask about calligraphy. And uh, and it will matter to you because it's relevant to what you're doing and what you, you want to achieve. Yeah, uh, with unfamiliar historical settings, and to some extent with with uh, the bigger uh, meteor game worlds, and certainly with anything Mark Smiley has done, you have the possibilities of art, and that's you know don't don't go to sleep on that. The the publisher has worked very very hard to provide great art, and Mark Smiley, of course, is a great artist and provided great art. So you know, point say you know you're going to be here and you point to that castle in the, in the book, or if it's a historical setting, someone has depicted it, probably an Osprey painter. If it's a historical setting that ever fought a different historical setting. And so <laughs> you can find uh, images of, of their warriors, maybe their, uh, their arist- aristocracy, their upper class. Maybe you might find artifacts or things that they used. That's another way. Put up a Pinterest board and say, this is, what the society you're from or going to looks like. And that can get people into the mix. And plenty of settings that are unfamiliar to you or your players might be super familiar to somebody else. So right now, standing start, I could not do a very creditable job of running a game set in medieval Korea, but the Korean film industry has offered up zillions of movies set in medieval Korea, and I can find two or three of them and the player, you can have a little watch session. And uh, sure enough, that was a great way to sell it because now everyone's amped up to uh, shoot arrows at bad guys and and uh, fight for the honor of the of the king against the hated enemies of Korea in the medieval period. And um, <laughs> you, you got all manner of uh, of, of wonderful possibilities uh, when you start with Earth with your unfamiliar setting with with a created one, a secondary world. You are at the mercy to some extent of the publisher or the producer of that, because for you know many, many years, the art was not the salient thing about Glorantha. Now, of course the world is different there's lovely pretty glorantha pictures everywhere but uh with some things um you don't have that option but if you do have that option definitely use it because that's another way of conveying feel without making people read a whole book is look at the pretty pictures and decide what part you like uh, you think your character would be fun to dress as right and the next uh tip that i would give is when designing scenarios avoid the syndrome, and this is certainly a problem with some early uh, Glorantha things, for example, is either it's just entirely sandbox, uh, which is fine if your players want to run a sandbox thing. But if it's a, a scenario with uh, some semblance of a predetermined plot, make sure that plot involves more than just taking the characters on a tour of interesting people in the world doing interesting things, that it has to be interactive and uh, make the uh, player characters, the the center of attention. And that is, I think, a a, a hidden flaw in a lot of these uh, worlds that something based on exploration, the GM or scenario writer goes, oh, well, I'm really interested in, in the culture of, of the trolls. So I'm going to create a scenario that takes you through all of the high points of troll culture. But that's 
not an interactive experience. And so, uh, you know, what do the player characters want and who do they interact with and why are their choices central to every scene so that as you go along, you might indeed, you know, take the characters down to the troll insect pit and they can see uh, these giant insects being raised as herd beasts. But there's more going on to it that that is, is not just it's not about just, oh, go and look at the bugs. Go and talk to the to the people raising the bugs because you really need this thing from them. And the main bug raiser has this personal quality that is going to make that scene interesting. But it's about you. It's not about you go down. It's not Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, the ride, uh, where you just go on right. a little boat past all mm-hmm. these things going on. But you uh, get off the boat and you interact with the pirates. Yeah, there's a the sort of the shorthand version of this is to accuse these kind of scenario writers of of being wannabe novelists that they read Tolkien or Dune at an early age and they're like, well, obviously the key to storytelling is to stop every page and a half and go on about the background until you are ready to move ahead with the plot. And obviously Lord of the Rings and Dune are terrific books. Everyone loves them. They are terrible models for gameplay because they're not about that. They are, uh, in in Tolkien's case, uh, explicating mythology in, in Frank Herbert's case. They are uh, arguing sociology, so different jobs while also having adventure stories sort of buried under the rubble. You, by and large, in a gaming group, need to put that adventure story up top and think if you have these elements of troll culture that you want to hit and you know you want to see the bug ranch, have the uh, the bad guy steal a bug and ride away on it, and you're like, we have to chase them. All we have are these troll bugs to ride, and so you have an interactive element of it. And you, I mean, you can do the, you know, bounce off every aspect of the setting. Uh, there are terrific stories that are basically all about that, but just make sure that you're interacting with it as opposed to watching it go by. Like you said, it's not a theme park ride. This even happens in scenarios uh, for games that just have a lot of backstory and not a particularly unfamiliar culture. Lots and lots of early vampire scenarios had the same problem where your job was to sit quietly while the big, important vampires talk to each other. And that is that that's not interesting, even if the big, important vampires are are played by uh, beloved um, uh, actors and rock stars. It's certainly not interesting if they're played by, you know, Earl, the GM. So that is uh, nothing against Earl. He's a fine guy. But still, that that's just bad storytelling from the perspective of trying to get people who are not already invested, invested, right? Right. And that is another uh, challenge with these settings is that often they do have, as Glorantha does, a narrative with lead characters explaining how they change the world. And so the, uh, the additional level of challenge there is to make sure that the players feel that they have an impact on the flow of history uh, they may not be the the, uh, the general who uh, conquers the lunar empire and, and uh, destroys it once and for all, but they hang out with that general. And uh, there's lots of other things that are vital to uh, the success of that uh, great historical movement. And you are uh, deep in them, that you are, uh, that what you're doing matters. And you may start off seeming like you're on the periphery, right? You can't, you, it's an interesting arc to go, well, at the beginning, you can't even, you know, uh, get to see Wyatt Earp. He's not going to talk to you. He thinks you're just a Schmendrick, as uh, Wyatt's uh, well-known Yiddish background uh, would indicate. But eventually, you get to uh, win over Wyatt Earp and hang out with him and do Wyatt Earpy 
uh, sort of things. And so, again, make sure that they're you're not just playing the spear carriers, because that's even worse than being the passive stranger observers, uh, that you're in the culture, but you can't really do anything because of these other characters. So that's another thing to, to watch out for and to find uh, ways to um, activate. But I think uh, once we're getting to don't let the NPCs run the story, we're, we're on the verge of a thing that not only we always say, but everybody always says. And therefore, it's time for us to head on out of this segment and into the next. The second edition of Mutant City Blues. By Robin D. Laws. And now with added Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Is now in print from Pelgrane Press. Grab your Quaid diagrams and solve the crimes of a near future, where 1% of the population wields superpowers. As members of the elite heightened crime investigation unit, you and your fellow detectives solve crimes involving the city's mutant community. When a mutant power is used to kill, you catch the case. When it's a mutant victim in the chalk outline, you get the call. New features include the ability to go beyond the badge with a private investigator campaign frame. A simplified push system to amplify your investigative abilities. Expanded chase rules. And a spiffy new cover by comics artist extraordinaire, Gene Ha. Find it at your favorite retail store. Or use the voucher code DIAGRAM2020 to get 15% off at the Pelgrain store. It's time to uh, drive our uh, Impalas into the drive-in, and we're going to find our parking spot. We're going to take the little speaker off the uh, the post there, and we're going to set it on our window, and we're going to lean back because it's time once more uh, here in the uh, Cinema Hut, now in an outdoor Cinema Hut, to resume our Horror Essentials uh, series. We're now up to part seven, suggesting that this may be our, our longest series ever uh, by the time we're done. You, you thought we had lots of magicians of the Belle Epoque. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is, there's more good movies than there are interesting Nazi occultists, it turns out. <laughs> Which for a, for a little while, you'd, you'd have to question, but nope, I think we've demonstrated that. Right. Uh, so we are now reaching the late sixties and the early seventies. This is a time of uh, not just tumult and ferment, but a time when people are starting to worry that everything is coming apart. And revolution is in the air. There may be something in your drink. Uh, there may be a, a psychedelic thing happening that starts to affect horror. But broadly speaking, we are entering a time uh, where uh, horror goes apocalyptic. And uh, Ken, there's a, a great uh, example of that uh, from 1967 from the UK, a filmed adaptation of a BBC serial written by Nigel Neal. Uh, this is Quatermass and the Pit by Roy Ward Baker, and uh, it uh, is, a, I think, a great start for discussion of apocalyptic horror because uh, something gets dug up, and it initially just seems like, you know, it's sort of a, a construction problem, a licensing issue, possibly something where you have to contact the Heritage Department, but uh, it gets much bigger than that, doesn't it? Yeah, Quatermass in the Pit, I mean, first of all, it's just great as it is. It's a terrific film. It's the best of the three Quatermass movies and not by a little bit four Quatermass movies and not by a little bit, but it also really beautifully moves from the Gothic of the early sixties into 
the apocalypse of the late sixties, because it begins, as you say, about literally digging up the past and the question of what is this thing that we have found? They initially think it's an unexploded Nazi rocket. And as Quatermass is brought in from the rocket group, uh, he discovers, no, it's a ship from Mars, a ship from 5 million years ago. And that's why it uh, had the American title of 5 million years to Earth, which was a, a great title, but not as good as Quatermass in the pit. So they dig into it, and it turns out that the Martians destroyed themselves through war and hatred, basically, and landed here on Earth. And their legacy is our legacy. And the way that it is presented is the most beautiful, you don't want to say economical. It's like, um, uh, it's like fauvism. It's like the big, bold splashes of color that carry you through until you're out of the museum and you say, that didn't look like an island at all. But, uh, Quatermass of the Pit brings you through with this sort of powerful exposition. Andrew Keir is, is the best, uh, screen Quatermass as well, which is, very helpful. It's a strong um, hammer uh, in that all the production design is really good. They don't waste a lot of time with things that don't need to be wasted on. All the characters have their little bits of business that establish them as, as people, not as sort of stock figures. It's just a, a very, very good movie, and it pulls you into literally a possible apocalypse unleashed on the streets of London. And of course, the, uh, the menace, as Quatermass discovers, is within us that uh, we are the Martians. We are the inheritors of their legacy of destruction. And it's the sort of grappling with what that question means that's at the core of all the great Quatermass stories, because, of course, you mentioned Nigel Neal, possibly the greatest screenwriter that Britain has ever produced. That is a central uh, question of, of, of the Quatermass uh, series in TV and in film. And uh, in Quatermass in the Pit, I think that it reaches its pinnacle. I think it, it, it's because of the tight running time. I think it's even better than the BBC version. Although, of course, more Neil is good Neil. But this is this is uh, legitimately a, an essential and legitimately a classic. This is not me special pleading for Quatermass. This is just a terrific movie all all the way down. So next we come to the most apocalyptic of horror genres. This film is the one that starts it all. It's uh, the one that derives its ultimate horror from uh, nihilism. Uh, and that, of course, is The Night of the Living Dead, uh, directed by George Romero from 1968, uh, starring Dwayne Jones as, uh, a, a, at the time, uh, almost un unprecedented use of a black actor as the, the lead of uh, a, a genre movie where his blackness was not the explicit issue of anything, although it, of course, is uh, wildly important to the meaning. In fact, uh, Romero wrote that role without any particular racial identity in mind and liked Dwayne Jones and cast him in it. And that sort of adds an entire level of meaning to this. Uh, but, of course, this is the film where the zombie as we know it is not from Haiti anymore, right, Ken? No, no. Now it is from, in fact, it's from Richard Matheson. This uh, began as a uh, film version of I Am Legend, the great Richard Matheson vampire novel, which is why the bites are contagious. And Romero couldn't get the rights to I Am Legend, realized he didn't need the rights because he had a visual that was going to be so powerful that it was going to let him tell his own story. That's another reason that the origins of the zombies in Night of the Living Dead is almost hand waved off of the off the film it almost doesn't matter because romero realizes that the central question is not where do zombies come from is it haiti is it venus is it hell 
zombies are here. The question is, are we ready? And the answer in virtually all George Romero movies is, oh, laughably no. And uh, human society is deformed and destroyed over and over and over again in the whole sequence. And in Night of the Living Dead, all of the flashpoints and, and brittle uh, spots in 60s culture are open uh, to be mostly chewed on. The, the genius of the the mass horror, the horror of everyone around you, which comes out of Richard Matheson, the brilliance of the zombie makeup and the and the question of the returning dead, which I think is from Romero thinking of vampires are dead people. How come they're not dead in I Am Legend? Let's fix that. That is a, a potent combination. The the notion of the mass catastrophe. You know, we have the sort of the the monster movies, the the, the hordes of giant ants or whatever from them. This is that taken down to the human scale and masterfully done. There's a reason that Romero's zombies are the other apocalyptic myth of the 20th century and that they are still being looked at far, uh, far more often with fresh eyes than uh, even vampires are. Even the great Dracula is uh, in some degrees taking the back seat to the zombie. Uh, in the 20th century. Right. And the sort of threadbare black and white uh, production uh, merely enhances the horror and uh, uh, makes it uh, feel more real and immediate. The sort of uneven acting even contributes to that as well. You sort of feel that you're seeing something with uh, kind of real people in it. And also just the time that it is occurring in. There is an earlier film version of I Am Legend with Vincent Price in it. But somehow... This all happening against the background of 1968 is, in addition to Romero's rough cunning as a filmmaker, are what sort of crystallizes everything. And this is a film for its moment and uh, an eternal film, all the more eternal for the fact that due to a paperwork error, it's in the public domain. (laughs) So therefore, when you see characters watching a horror movie in another horror movie, 75% of the time it's going to be Night of the Living Dead. Because it doesn't cost you anything. You don't need to clear it. From the global to the personal, we can move. And speaking of Vincent Price, this is uh, a Vincent Price film in that it is starring Vincent Price and he's the core of it. It is Witchfinder General, directed by Michael Reeves, another British horror film in 1968. If you remember our Folk Horror 101, this was this is one of the legs of the tripod of folk horror. And it is set in a time of apocalypse, namely the English Civil War. But it is about an individual act of evil and cruelty, or actually a lot of acts of evil and cruelty, but it burrows down to one man, uh, the titular Witchfinder General, which is Vincent Price. And it is as brutal as Hammer films are restrained. This is the next step in British horror, is to attempt to sort of head to the direction that the Italians are already going, that uh, the the notion of evil and misogyny and hatred being depicted on screen with as misogynistic and hateful an image as the character's actions are morally is uh, quite a departure for Britain. It's quite a departure for Vincent Price. And it's, it's not an easy watch even now, Robin, I am not, I'm not a rewatch Witchfinder general kind of a guy. Yes. It's a, it's quite a scabrous film. It's, uh, it's upsetting and it is definitely the spirit of the apocalypse, the spirit of the, the uh, world coming apart uh, as it was in the English Civil War and as it seemed to be in 1968, infecting the Gothic. So this is the sort of the Gothic goes late 60s. So it's the here's this actor who we're used to uh, from the Poe movies, which have a a certain kind of uh, theatricality to them. And in fact, Reeves did not want Vincent Price 
he thought he would do a typical campy job of the performance and uh, wanted to find a different actor who didn't carry Price's cultural resonance. But Price does the shift and is quite uh, successfully uh, horrible and menacing. And the the change from his uh, earlier sort of lighter horror performances to this one is part of what uh, really makes that uh, film a hit. Um, now, another aspect of the apocalyptic in the uh, the 60s and 70s is that the devil is coming back. Uh, we've had uh, some demons before. There's been uh, hints of uh, the satanic in uh, in film, but uh, here uh, now it really starts to come back in in a sense that the that the old horrors are uh, infesting us, and there's a sense among at least a part of the population that this thing could be uh, real. And that's what gets us to Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby, also from 1968, with uh, Mia Farrow and uh, John Cassavetes. Polanski himself, of course, is someone who had terrible things happen to him as a child, and since we have uh, subsequently discovered uh, done terrible things to other children. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that doesn't uh, change the pivotal nature of Rosemary's Baby as a key watermark in uh, film history and something that establishes the satanic, the idea of the, 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 the Christian devil as a uh, menace in horror. And again, it is the, the corruption is coming from inside the house because it's about uh, one member of a family committing a, a terrible act of betrayal. And that's what uh, brings the particular sense of horror and this sort of claustrophobic uh, story of a woman who there's just seems to be something wrong with her neighbors, something wrong with her husband, and something wrong with her pregnancy. Yeah, um, the the amazing thing about Rosemary's Baby is the degree to which it is so very sympathetic to Mia Farrow's character that there is, even if you, the viewer, are thinking, because this is your first time ever watching a horror movie, that Rosemary is exaggerating, you don't, you're not mad at her for it. You're concerned for her. You're worried. And there is a almost an instant empathy with the Mia Farrow character that Polanski just nails. And then you you sort of stay in her skin through the whole film. It's kind of a remarkable, extra remarkable, when, as you say, you understand who Roman Polanski was, a work of, of filmic empathy. And unusually in a horror film, it is very, very strong empathy for a female character, which is not something you see an awful lot given the boys club nature of horror filmmaking. And it's uh, a very, uh, very close adaptation of the novel, the Ira Levin novel, which is an excellent novel. Legendarily, it was Polanski's first ever adaptation of a novel. And so he would call up Ira Levin all the time and say, you say in the novel that there's a copy of Time magazine on the table. What, what issue? We have all three from the, we, but I don't know which issue it would be. And Ira Levin, Apparently at some point said, stop calling me Roman Polanski, but the, but the, the, the sort of the fidelity to the story is very, very strong in this, as well as, as you say, the genius of casting both Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes, uh, who is uh, one of the great sort of fluid actors of our time and, uh, does an amazing job as Rosemary's husband, who is again, perhaps in a little bit of a prediction or projection, uh, kind of a problematic fellow, his own self. Uh, it, it's an amazing film. It, it's just it, it, every beat of it is good. It, it's one of the best things I think that Polanski ever did. And um, man, that is not 
That's not nothing, given that he also made Chinatown, for gosh sakes. But I would put Rosemary's Baby up with Chinatown in terms of just a peak film of any genre. Uh, next to the lighter side of the devil, uh, we have <laughs> another Satan Hammer news. film. That, yeah, yeah. The Devil Rides Out uh, by Terrence Fisher. This is from 1968. It's an adaptation of a Dennis Wheatley novel with uh, Christopher Lee as uh, Wheatley's uh, occult investigator, whose name can is... Duck Derishlow. The Duck Derishlow. And this is maybe not at the same level as some of these other titles, but I really love this film. I think it does have a sort of a an inexplicably fascinating atmosphere and is very rewatchable. But I thought we had to mention it. It's got such a good vibe. Yeah. And the great Charles Gray as Moncada, the uh, Aleister Crowley wannabe villain... Charles Gray has never been plumier yes. uh, in, a, in a role. He's like, it's like George Sanders was given to us for one last time as Charles Gray's Mankata. That's how good he is. And I mentioned it here to listeners as a podcast uh, and uh, from Canada because it is very gumshoe, right? It's, it is an occult investigation uh, movie where the there's a team of player characters and they're uh, they're fighting a bad guy and overcoming all of these obstacles and gaining information. And it's got a beautiful color sense. And uh, is something perhaps less essential for all horror fans, but definitely, uh, I think, essential for uh, Ken Robin fans. And deliberately and intentionally, a shift from Terrence Fisher to Peter Bogdanovich with Targets, 1968, which is a film, like all great Westerns, are films about the end of the West. This is a film about the end of horror. It's a uh, movie about a sniper who is a bad person going around sniping for no apparent reason. And the sort of his foil, his counterpart, his opposite is an old angry horror movie actor who is basically planning to get out of the business, go back to England and tell the punk kids today to, to stuff it played, of course, by the great Boris Karloff. And if you ever say, oh, Karloff can't act, it's just all the, the costumes and the makeup that act for him, watch Targets. He's he's, yes. a, he's amazingly good in it. Apparently, uh, Sam Fuller had a little touch of the screenplay, which is which is a lovely sign. And of course, their, their great confrontation between Karloff and uh, the sniper happens at a drive-in movie theater, and that that's where the, the final sort of moment of confrontation happens. It's a horror film in the Sniping is the closest uh, actual murder gets to a a sort of a supernatural uh, cause of death. It's death from nowhere, very evil eye. And, of course, Karloff playing the literal death of horror is a, an amazing experience. It's a fantastic movie. And it, like most of Bogdanovich's things, it sort of it overthinks itself. But in this case, possibly because of Sam Fuller, it hits every beat that you want it to for a, 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 a both a human experience and a horror experience. I think that anyone thinking about the history of horror uh, needs to engage with targets, and it's definitely worth watching, at the very least, as a way to remember the great Boris Karloff that is not um, something like, say, the Crimson Cult or some of the awful garbage that he was in in the 70s. Yeah, there's a beautiful moment in this film where basically Bogdanovich just goes, let's show Boris acting. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Boris, do some acting. Do a monologue. And it's Beautiful. It's uh, another film that takes advantage of its scrappy uh, budget and short shooting schedule. It was actually made for uh, Roger Corman. And uh, as you point out, the thesis of this is basically you think Frankensteins are scary. You know, it's really frightening Charles Whitman, a spree killer with that sort of motiveless malignity. Uh, and this, of course, was back when spree killers 
were were rare. It wasn't a, a viral thing that dominant. You know, here's another one every day. Uh, so uh, that sort of suggested, oh, our, our world uh, has kind of already ended, and the world of gothic horror is dead, and the world of real American street horror uh, has begun. Now, I had hoped when we uh, started this segment that for thematic reasons, we uh, since we're doing the apocalypse, that we'd be able to get all the way from uh, Quatermass and the pit to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But we've already talked for 15 minutes. <laughs> and just as we were in our uh, in the turn to the gothic, the turn to the apocalyptic turns out to be capacious. Yes. So next <laughs> episode, uh, we'll uh, pick things up again uh, in the early 70s when things have, they're not necessarily on the precipice of feeling that everything is going to blow up, but everything has gone sour and the, the poison is still in the bloodstream. So join us uh, next week for the 70s part of the horror apocalypse. But now it's time for us to, uh, to move to a different non-cinema hut. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast safely on the boil by joining beloved Patreon backers exactly like Alan McSager, Benjamin Rawls, Mark Galliotti, Rafe Ball, and Sean Hoyle. The bubbling of pots, the smell of spices, the yowl of a cat who is not getting fed anything that you're chopping right now. Welcome <laughs> us into the food hut. And today in the food hut, we often talk about good things to do with food. Well, today we're going to talk about bad things to do with food. Bad things that we were told by others and have figured out was a bad thing. This is bad cooking advice. I don't know to what extent we're going to drill down to specific bad recipes, but there's sort of plenty of scope. We should mention that lies are a kind of bad cooking advice, so don't believe the lies. <laughs> They're the worst kind. The worst kind. Don't believe the lies. Caramelizing onions takes half an hour. If, if your recipe is lying to you, just don't trust it. Budget that half hour. That's how long caramelizing onions takes. All recipes are liars. Right. Or, or do it in an instant pot. Yeah. We said it before. We'll say it again. It's the thing we always say. Caramelized onions uh, takes longer than they say it does, which puts into doubt the question, particularly with a lot of recipes, is... Was this recipe play tested? Mm. Uh, because just like a lot of role playing scenarios, once you try things, sometimes you go, did anyone do this? 
So I'm going to start off with a, a big category of advice that will often turn out to be faulty is something on a food package. Uh, because that package is trying to sell you food. <laughs> so uh, one thing that I recently discovered, due to the uh, necessity of laying in longer supply trains, I tried some dried mushrooms uh, recently. And uh, the dried mushroom, although it is a, a staple of certain uh, cuisines, is uh, something I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about in general. But definitely don't follow the advice that says, the water that you soak the mushroom in in order to bring it back to life makes an excellent broth. It does not. <laughs> it, it, it makes an excellent thing to add to another broth. I don't see that it's a, it's a bad idea to use it. Um, assuming that you're, I, I guess there's, there's sort of two questions. If your dried mushrooms are mostly uh, dust and grit, then you are correct, Robin. It makes a terrible broth. But if you've like sourced your um, uh, porcinis, and all the dust and grit is dusty, gritty bits of porcini that have fallen off, then I think you can use the broth safely, but use it to um, amplify your chicken broth or whatever. Don't just use it as its own stock for mushroom soup, because then that will be terrible. Uh, yeah, so I, I had, you know, perfectly high-end dried mushrooms, but perhaps your argument that if you put them in something good-tasting, their nasty taste will then be diluted. <laughs> perhaps that's a good one. But I'm just going to say... My recommendation across the board is don't mess with dried mushroom water. Throw, throw out I the can't. dried mushroom water. <laughs> um, I, I will tell you a piece of uh, bad advice that I got. I don't know where I got it, but I got it from somebody who I trusted. And it turned out, well, I think a lie is strong, but I think what that person liked was bacon. You know, you, you know, the old, the old question, Robin is, do you like your bacon, uh, chewy or crunchy? Do you like it firm under the teeth or, uh, sharp and brittle? Well, this person didn't want to decide, and they said, why not make bacon that is both chewy and crunchy by quick cooking it? Uh, you, you, you heat up your pan, you toss in your, uh, your thawed bacon. Uh, before you know it, you have bacon that is black down one side and the fat is still soft. And that's, that's lovely bacon. That's how bacon ought to be. And for years and years and years, that's how I was eating bacon and cooking it more, more is the point for my long suffering wife. And then at some point, I did the playtesting thing and I said, you know what? I'll bet there's a, a other people have made bacon other ways. And I looked up, uh, there's a, a, a guy named Kenji Lopez Alt, who is a great chef, runs a website called Serious Eats that is all about the playtesting. And he playtested a bunch of bacon. And uh, the general rule that he had was the longer you can cook your bacon, the better it's going to be. So he's a big fan of oven bacon. Uh, he's a big fan of other kinds of, uh, of thing, but he says, if you're going to make bacon on the, st on the stovetop, put it in a cold pan, heat it slowly, then it will cook very evenly. It'll cook through and you can take it out whenever you think it's done. He recommends like half an hour to cook bacon, which is ridiculous. So I, I started, guess you could do it while you're caramelizing your onions. You could do it while you're caramelizing your onions, but I feel like, um, it's worth it to get bacon that is all the way, the way you want it. If you cook the bacon over, say, just shy of medium heat and you cook it for, say, 10 minutes or 15 minutes, as opposed to three minutes on, under super high heat and slow cooking bacon uh, or slower cooking bacon, at least, is a million times tastier than the sort of why not all the bacon methodology that is uh, fast cooked bacon. So quick cooking bacon is a legitimate bad idea that I legitimately did for far too long. 
and then slowly realized, as you say, I don't think anyone playtested this bacon. It does stand to reason that all the other cuts of pork are good when you cook them slow. It makes sense that so would bacon. Yeah. That checks out when you think about it. Yeah, when you look back on it, I was the the chump here, but I was misled by bad companions. Uh, The thing that I did for years, based on advice that I think Valerie read to me from an article, therefore the advice gained unwanted authority, uh, was that you should always cook uh, mushrooms on high heat and cook them until they're good and crispy and scorched. (laughs) And... I realized after doing that for many years that I actually like my mushrooms kind of softer. I don't like them when they're scorched. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's maybe the occasional recipe that calls for that level of crispy mushroomness. But no, that's not a thing you always have to do. That's just something that that advisor said to do. And mushrooms shouldn't always be the same texture. You should vary them depending on uh, what it is. And also, you wind up, unless you're doing it in a cast iron pan, which is a whole other segment of uh, you know, do we bother with a cast iron pan? But if you're using any other pan, you're going to wreck all your pans cooking things at high heat. Yeah. So I uh, realized that uh, that was a classic bit of advice that I just sort of took for granted without examining what do I really want out of my mushrooms and the survival rate of my pans. Plus, if you scorch them, you've lost the whole point of mushrooms, which is that they're tasty little sponges. So, you know, you, you, you put in the, the wine and the butter and they soak it all up into their little mushroom cells. But if you scorched it back out, what, what have you accomplished? Nothing. You just burned everything. Um, another sort of a, a thing that I think was a more general idea was marination of meat. And there is some value, certainly, to quick marinating something for like 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Uh, there is some value to leaving things in the fridge overnight or even longer with a salt rub or a dry rub, some kind of dry brine on them. That makes sense. That works like a charm. But when they say, put your meat into the tub with, and they always say with salt and acid, so uh, lemon juice or, or vinegar, then the meat will tenderize. And no, that won't. It, what you'll do, What you're doing is you're cooking the meat with the acid. That's what acid does is it cooks. And it makes your meat mushy, which is different from tender. It is very different from tender. And so as a, as a sort of a bonus hit on the head, when you actually play test marination, the flavor barely even goes through the outer skin of the meat, no matter how long you do it. And so at some point you say, couldn't I have made a sauce in this day and a half? And the answer was yes. Yes, you could have. So. Dry rubbing makes sense because salt uh, gets into the body of the meat and does change things. And some marination for some meats, uh, chicken or fish, uh, more delicate meats, you can marinate those for 30 minutes or so, and they will uh, they will take on some flavor. But pork and beef, marinating them overnight in acid, all that does is make them mushy and bad. Uh, don't do it. If you need to tenderize your beef because it is a cut that is not very tender, either slow cook it or pound it with one of the marinating hammers that you see in the, in your, in your drawer. And you think I never bought this. Why do I own it? And it turns out you were issued it as a child. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of cooking techniques originally came from uh, people who had time and not money. Mm -hmm. The long tenderization of uh, not great cuts of meat is a big part of uh, French cuisine, which definitely comes from that uh, school. But uh, as you point out, if you have a hammer, (laughs) you can do that. Or, you know, if you're lucky enough to afford a better cut of meat is worth it. Yeah. And it, it's not that it's not that untender meat is bad meat necessarily. It's just that you aren't going to tenderize it with acid. So tenderize it with slow heat 
put it in the oven for that hour and a half. That's a better idea. Right. A thing that people seem to believe is that if you poke the meat with the instant read thermometer or cut it open even with a knife to check how done it is, that that is bad because all the juices will run out of the meat. And first of all, <laughs> the problem with not doing it is you don't know what temperature your meat is, which is far worse than any uh, futile juice wrangling. An important thing about cooking. Yes, is cooking meat to temperature. Um, and if you get an instant read thermometer, it's a tiny little hole anyway, but also the juices don't run out. That's a, that's another myth. That's another thing that, not to make this the Kenji Lopez alt show, but Kenji went and he play tested temping meat and he's, and he discovered that the amount of meat that is lost in a generalized cooking of, of the meat versus the amount that is lost if you cut the meat to temp it is about the same amount. It's, you, you maybe lose 2% more meat juice the second way, which you can't taste the difference of. Right. One thing I've noticed about cooking meat is that the juice runs out. That's. <laughs> that's that's an important and in fact necessary thing it's part of knowing when things are cooked <laughs> even next thing is back to the, our perennial uh, appliance friend uh, the instant pot because you're cooking things with a bit of added liquid that uh, you uh, sometimes wind up with a dish that is uh, has a little too much moisture in it and uh, one of the pieces of advice that the uh, instant pot cookbooks give you is well then just put it on the saute setting and cook off that additional liquid and you're always going to overcook your meal when you do that. You're still not going to get the right temperature. It also takes forever to do. Yeah, because it's a tiny little pot. Yeah. And so uh, what is uh, better to do is either to put in some sort of post hoc thickening agent, uh, which could be a tomato paste or sour cream Corn or starch. starch of some kind, or if it's something that is not amenable to that, just tip it over a strainer. And let the extra liquid run out. Or if you must, 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 must reduce it, uh, take the meat or whatever it is you cooked in the Instant Pot out, put it under foil or, or in a warm oven or whatever it is to keep it from cooling off and just reduce it in a larger pan. Just pour it into a skillet and reduce it like you would a pan sauce. Although, by and large, the amount of liquid in a Instant Pot is too much liquid. So, you're, you're better off uh, just dumping it out like you say robin and, and leaving the solids for the actual meal and finally a well-known british tv chef in uh, one of his shows demonstrated how to do a lovely veggie roast and uh, the instructions are all great and solid in terms of what sort of mix of things you want to make sure there's an acid there's a vinegar or a tomato or uh, onions or so forth and how long you do it for and what you're looking for but then the final piece of advice he gives is to before you put in this thing that's going to roast at high temperatures for 40 to 60 minutes, throw in some herbs, a sprig of rosemary or some uh, basil or something. And it's like, no, I don't know why you, TV chef, have forgotten that herbs get destroyed really quickly under high roast heat. And uh, you can get all the flavor you want out of that by pulling out the roast about five minutes before you think it's done. Then you put in the herb and then it will be, uh, the flavors will be intermixed with everything else and it won't just be uh, completely uh, burned off and all of the uh, flavor of that herb gone. There was a similar, I, th I think later Instant Pot cooks have figured this out, or most of them have. There was a similar problem with Instant Pot back in the day. It was, oh, just toss in the herbs at the beginning of the Instant Pot. And it's like, nope, you will boil away all the flavor. The flavor will be gone. Put the herbs in towards the end of the cooking process or sprinkle them over new at the end. It, it, heat and herbs, some rosemary puts up with it a little bit time even but virtually everything else all the freshness is gone just 
use it fresh at the as, as close to the end of cooking as you can st- as as you can stand and then you're going to do a good job the the amount of basil that is basically been burned alive for no reason it, it makes you sad right and that's true for instant pot recipes where you're that are more toward the slow cooking end of the spectrum but if it's something with a pretty short cooking time like a risotto or whatever it's perfectly fine to uh pop them in hit yeah you know, if, if you're only cooking it for like 10 minutes then that's that's wonderful that, that that's how long you would cook it normally but if you're you know thinking i'm gonna make instant pot pot roast don't put herbs in at the beginning <laughs> that that's just a terrible idea it's actually a worse idea than putting them in at the beginning of a regular pot roast so there you are because the higher heat right uh well on that note i think it's uh time for us to uh i think we we've uh, regretted enough of other people's mistakes that were then became our mistakes and can now move on to our uh, ultimate segment of this here podcast. Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the Internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. It's time once more to enter that most variegated of huts, the hut that is vaguely paranormal, but is also about hoaxes and strange historical mysteries. And it's always sort of unclear until we see the gray alien and the Nordic alien. And they're uh, they're not just drinking kombucha. They've got their popcorn ready because this one is a doozy. And even the alien big cat screaming on the moor has climbed in through the window to hear the story of the Zasharina Hole. And uh, this story of uh, Elliptony uh, from Bulgaria, uh, which is not too long ago. It's not one of these uh, old-timey Elliptonies, but it takes us all the way back to the 1990s. It's just got everything in it. It's got everything. It's an example that even the old standards can be great again if you just remix. Right. And it's one that requires a lot of historical footnoting. Uh, So guess what? (laughs) It's it's right up our alley. So in in Bulgaria in autumn of 1990, uh, an elevator technician named Dmitar Kekmeninov has a dream, Ken, and that dream features two of Bulgaria's national heroes, Vasil Kunchev, also known as Levski the Lion, and one of his protégés, Christo Botev. And can can you tell us a bit about them in real history before they get roped into this weird story that I'm sure they would completely disapprove of? Well, disapprove is a strong word. Uh, neither of them seem to have a really good grasp on the practical. Uh, Levski the Lion was a, a nationalist uh, thinker. He was inspired by the romantic explosion across Europe and said, why not Bulgaria? 
Why right. shouldn't Bulgaria? And this is the middle of awesome? the 19th century. Yes, this is the 1840s. Is when he is uh, becoming inspired and, and being active, and he uh, sets up uh, a number of uh, revolutionary movements in Bulgaria and in uh, Macedonia that are uh, basically going to start World War One in another 80 years, but. He's busy setting them up in the 1840s. Right. And his revolution is against the Ottoman Empire, which is controlling Bulgaria. Against the hated Ottomans, against the Turks. He uh, believed in radical equality, both of religions and of, and of uh, nationalities. He believed in a, a strong and independent Bulgaria that had a sort of a mystical uh, role in Europe. He, he had that sort of national mysticism going uh, for him. And one of his buddies hiding out in the hills was... Uh, Hristo Botev, uh, or Botyav, as I believe he was christened, um, who was a poet and also, therefore, as a poet, was qualified to lead a major uh, revolutionary movement. Right. He did ask people who were already good at fighting. He just couldn't find them. Yeah, they, well, you know, the, many of them said, the Ottomans have the army, right? That's that's when good at fighting tells you which size has the army. There's a reason he couldn't find them. <laughs> it wasn't that he wasn't looking. So Levski builds up this this movement, but sadly... Uh, is betrayed to the to the Ottomans when um, part of the movement uh, decides to rob a post office and they get caught and they turn him over and he gets uh, strung up by the Turks and then Botev takes over after a brief faction fight he is the sort of direct action now let's take the war to them preparation is for the weak we have poetry and leads a failed revolution in 1875 and is killed by the Ottoman army. And so they have, of course, become great heroes because of the first great national heroes of Bulgaria, of modern Bulgaria. Right. So this brings us back to 1990 and the dream of uh, an elevator technician. And in his dream, both Levski and, and Botyev come to him and say, there's a magical treasure you need to find. And this treasure is the treasure of the czar. Uh, the treasure of the specific czar, the uh, uh, czar uh, Samuel, a czar of the first Bulgarian empire at the turn of the millennium. Yes. And so, Ken, what do we know about him? Czar Samuel is one of the great Bulgarian empire builders. He doesn't found Bulgaria, but uh, in the 980s uh, AD, he conquers a great swath of the Balkans from the Byzantine empire, going all the way down almost as far as Greece or, or as uh, into Greece, even he doesn't quite take uh, Constantinople, but he does take that big chunk of Macedonia. He moves the Bulgarian capital to Akrid, which is down in the Macedonia, Albania sort of area. He is a, uh, a mighty and undaunted warrior until the Byzantines get a different emperor, uh, Basil, uh, Emperor Basil the first, who is known to history as Basil Bulgaroctonos, meaning Basil who killed all the Bulgars. He uh, fights against Emperor Basil, who is not a rollover like these other Byzantines, is desperately crushed in battle in 1014 AD. Basil famously blinds the entire Bulgarian army, except for one out of every hundred men, who he leaves with one eye to lead the Bulgars back to Bulgaria. And it is said that when Tsar Samuel saw his army shuffling through the passes blinded, uh, he died of either shock or despair. And uh, left behind his treasure, no doubt to be buried uh, under a hole in Tsarischina. Tsarischina merely means village of the Tsar. So that seemed as good a reason as any to believe that Tsarischina is where Tsar Samuel's treasure was. And indeed, Tsarischina is sort of over in that Western Bulgaria 
uh, part where Samuel thought the spine of the Bulgarian Empire should be. Right. So that's going on, at least. Now, now listeners may get a little mad later when they discover that it turns out that what everybody thinks in the whole turns out to be completely different. But you just learned about a Bulgarian czar. And so don't get mad. And that's knowledge that you can't have taken from you. Because this story keeps going in weird directions. Oh, it does. So what Kekumenov does is he goes, well, naturally, having had this dream, the people I need to talk to are the army. Yeah. And they'll know what to do. For example, Robin, if you dreamed that uh, Alice Monroe and Brian Adams told you that uh, the Czar of Canada's treasure was somewhere, you'd go to the army. Well, I would go to Treasures Canada, but we're a little, we're set up differently here. Different system. Yeah. But he goes to the army. And of course... As you would assume, the army goes, oh, don't bother us with this crazy... Oh, wait a minute. No, that's that's not what happens. No, the, the army actually says, well, it's a good thing we have a psychic unit of remote viewers and clairvoyance then. He, it turns out Kekmenov knew his audience. Yeah, exactly. He, you know, he may have been an uh, elevator technician, but he was also possibly an army technician. And so the army, uh, and this is in 1990, this is just after the fall of uh, communism. Uh, they've bounced Tudor Zhivkov. The um, uh, po-faced bureaucrat who ran Bulgaria, and they're figuring out what Bulgaria is now. And someone probably said, Bulgaria is a country of poets and czars. It's a beautiful, magical country where only the best magic can happen. And so when Kekmanov brings, you know, the sort of the, the checked off list of names, Levski, Botyov, Tsar Samuel, the army says, this fits with our ideological preconceptions. And also we have clairvoyance. So one of the clairvoyants, one of the remote viewers, draws them a, a sketch of where the tomb is. And uh, one of the clairvoyants, named Elizaveta Loginova, tells them, oh, it's not, it's not a treasure. It's the tomb of the Earth's first being, the first person. Is it Adam? Is it Eve? It's better than that. It's both. It's a magical tomb. And since it's a magical tomb, only officers get to dig. And this is where I believe the first example of remote viewers getting their own back can be found. <laughs> where it's like only yes. officers and holders of advanced degrees can dig through the hideous clay soil under Tsar's China to look for the tomb of Earth's first being. Oh, yes. Trust us, it's down there. Yes, the the women who stare at goats and mess with the rear echelon MRFers. Exactly. So it's a it's a it's a lovely time, and they start digging. There, are, as one imagines, in that chunk of Bulgaria, there are areas of very very hard clay that take a great deal of effort to break through. But uh, Loganova's right there saying, "Oh, that's magical hard clay. It's been impacted by some sort of power." The first being doesn't want mere enlisted men digging. Dig that clay, officers. Right. Dig, dig, dig. And as they perhaps begin to ask questions, she suddenly begins automatic writing, trance writing, and fills three notebooks with what is often called in the in the terms an unknown language and is also possibly could be characterized as gibberish and nonsense. The unknown languages are sent for analysis, not just to the army's cryptological centers, but also to biblical scholars in Israel, because the army thinks, well, if this is Adam slash Eve down there, the Israelis must know about them. Run this gibberish up the flagpole. Exactly. And indeed they do. They have to bump it up to a uh, an even higher placed seer in uh, Bulgaria, Baba Vanga, or, or Grandmother Vanga. And I'm not sure what Baba Vanga did before to get placed as the highest seer in Bulgaria. I'm sure it was great. She looks very impressive, uh, looks like a proper seer. And she says, it's not an intersex person. It's an intersex 
alien. This is alien civilization. This is aliens have come down and, and left the first person. And you will find a yellow monkey if you open the crypt, but don't open the crypt. Don't open the crypt because you'll find a yellow monkey. You'll find a yellow monkey. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. And so we all know it in, in horror movies when the authoritative crone figure tells you not to do something, you know what happens. Send the professors down to dig harder. Yeah. They, they find a strange material in the soil. Yep. Perhaps since they only people unaccustomed to digging were allowed to dig. Mm-hmm. No geologists are allowed <laughs> to dig. If they found dirt, that would have been strange to them. For some reason, after digging, I feel sore and tired everywhere. What's that about? Oh, that must be the alien magic. So yeah, then, as, as sort of the culmination of all of this... Because if this was the Oak Island mystery, Ken, this is just where it would stop. People would just keep digging, and there'd be a bunch of rumors and stories, and that's all there is to it. But right. this is Bulgaria, yeah. folks, so it escalates. And as we've mentioned, a magical land full of spiritual beauty, and also full of crazy stuff, uh, like there's a difference. So May 12th, 1991, suddenly from a cloudy sky emerge many UFOs and they speak at the very least to the clairvoyance, possibly to other people. They announce their presence. They send beams down. It's a big thing. It does not actually uncover the crypt. It does not actually dig anything up, but it is very impressive and sort of, I think, gets everyone over the hump of, we've been doing this for a year. Why are there no yellow monkeys? Right. It's, it's a, I assume, not having spoken to the aliens, that this is another warning not to touch the yellow monkeys. Not to touch the but yellow monkeys. When you show up in your close encounters cloud UFOs, it just encourages people to keep digging for the yellow monkeys. It, it does. By this time, however, perhaps saner heads are beginning to prevail. One of the remote viewers, a guy named uh, Naplatanov, says that there is a psychotronic weapon uh, being used against the, the, the psychics, and that's maybe why they're not finding anything. Well, you're right. It's getting normal now, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. And uh, he blames his daughter's suicide on the psychotronic weapons, which is a sad uh, side note. But possibly because of the uh, beginnings of discomfort at the site, possibly because the officers have got better things to do than dig a hole. Somebody says, let's just stop digging. And uh, Loganova, God bless her, says, oh, you were so close. Just, <laughs> You're so just close to the five meters away from the monkey crypt, but you stop digging because you have no faith. That's fine. Well, it's, it's sort of like, you know, a horror movie where finally the sensible thing happens. And instead of releasing the yellow monkey, someone just looks at the budget and goes, oh, we're... We're way over budget on the yellow monkey. Just leave it. Leave it in the ground. So, so if, if only, um, uh, in, uh, a deep blue sea, uh, someone had said, uh, general, this plan to raise super, uh, intelligent sharks is way over budget. They could have shut it down as opposed to yeah. this plan is ridiculously stupid. <laughs> Although that doesn't always work either. See the F 35. Yes. Well, I think Lockheed Martin was getting some of that smart shark money. So that's a, that's a so the smart sharks, separate yes, problem. The Raytheon building sharks smarter to build them harder. Anyways, uh, in November of 1992, the army finally comes to its senses. It's literally put 16 million leva down a hole in the, in, in the ground and says, perhaps we could use these leva for literally anything else. They uh, seal it up with concrete. Naplatnov uh, also commits suicide in 1995, possibly uh, out of disappointment, possibly out of being shoved out of a window by someone in the Bulgarian secret police who don't like being reminded that they dumped 16 million leva down a hole in the wall. Who can say? And now it is a not particularly exciting tourist location in Tsarishchina, Bulgaria. And I assume people from basic cable programs show up every now and again are are pointed at the hole. Well, well apparently there's there's a whole bunch of weird holes in Bulgaria. This is just one weird hole in Bulgaria. Just oh yeah, perhaps the most prominent one, but. 
one of several. Yeah, you can definitely do a whole uh, Mysteries of Bulgaria arc on your Ancient Aliens show. Coming up, our 16-part series of <laughs> right, yes. Bulgarian Essentials holes. of Bulgarian Magic Holes. And, of course, now, uh, of course, to, to uh, welcome us into the new Europe, uh, apparently it's covered in German hippies. They all uh, live there in their in their caravan or their tents or whatever hippies live in in Bulgaria. So it's it's still got a little bit of that uh, that from from not turn, being Quatermass three, it is now not Quatermass four, which I guess is good, right? Right. So I guess the only thing you need to make this a scenario is the yellow monkey gets out. Yep. Right. That they they dug just enough that he claws his way out and. Put, they. pushes it's neither neither man nor woman Robin. yes you're right don't misgender, the, misgender yellow the yellow monkey well it's not clear though that the yellow i wasn't thinking the yellow monkey is the entity that there's two things so you think there's two things in the crypt. i think there's the yellow monkey is the guardian of the of the entity of the entity oh well, that's possible yeah yeah because i think the entity seems kind of benign and this yellow monkey seems like trouble and they kept digging after they knew there was a yellow monkey. So, so obviously they've invited the wrath of the yellow monkey. I right. think that we, we agree on that. And the benignity of the alien hermaphrodite can be left, I guess, for as a, as a big question. Well, that's right? what gives you your solution, your scenario, right? Is that the yellow monkey pushes the, the wadge of concrete aside. There's some hippies to feast on. Havoc is wreaked. And you, the uh, investigators... Uh, have to, uh, while figuring out everything that's going on, and you have to commune with the czar, and you have to commune with the 19th century revolutionaries, and then finally realize that the entity with control over the yellow monkey is the first being. And then you have to go down into the crypt and find them and learn how to communicate with them in order to call back the yellow monkey uh, so that its its rampage uh, may cease. Right, and also uncover the truth of Bulgaria's mystic nature, which is obviously pretty impressive. If they've got the first being there, guarded by a yellow monkey or not. Well, we've told this simple tale. We've uh, put a scenario idea at the end. Ken, is there anything we need to do before we uh, go uh, dig through some clay in our own backyards? I guess uh, I could mention that the name of the psychic unit in uh, the Bulgarian army was apparently called Phenomena. This is well, not based the name on, of the show. <laughs> on any Bulgarian documents, but uh, it's based on what I saw on the internet somewhere, which is almost as good. And I believe after communism, everyone is very confused. They're running around. Bulgaria was part of the uh, Soviet uh, psychotronic weapons programs. Basically, I think that they just took everyone who'd done a, a semester at Kharkov or Kiev, and they took them back and they said, now you're our psychic unit, Phenomena. And... That might even have really happened. And then they're just sitting there thinking, oh, we've got to do something to justify our budget. Oh, thank God. An elevator technician has sent us a letter and they were off to the races. And one hopes, one hopes that uh, the good men and women of Phenomena got a little of that 16 million levs themselves for, you know, uh, insert Bulgaria's national dish here. Uh, to, to enjoy. So it's a, it's, it's a heartwarming story. It has aliens. It has a yellow monkey. It has UFOs. It has a czar. I, I, I can't imagine a more complete meal, Robin, a, a, a more beautiful repast than this. Right. Well, now that we've given people a, a complete meal with uh, slow cooked bacon and no uh, mushroom water, I think we can uh, pronounce ourselves done once again, but we'll be back a mere seven days from now for another episode of this here exciting podcast. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast out of the hole by joining esteemed backers. The Adventure Game Store. John W.S. Marvin. Scott Jones. Alex Johnston. And Corey Wells. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Garb yourself in pedantry with our new Begs the Question shirt. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>